For centuries, authors have created detailed maps of their fictional worlds. What is the history of literary maps, and why are audiences so enamored by them years later? Hello from elsewhere. I'm Valerie. And I'm Casey. Casey, you have a story for us. I do have a story. So because today we're talking about maps, and we both love maps, and we've been wanting to do this episode for a long, a long time. time. And uh, yes, I do have a story about about maps. It's not a fictional map. It's more of a real world map, but it's sort of fictional. I'll explain. Anyways, so growing up, we used to play Risk a lot, and there was a period of time where. It was me and my older brother, Ryan, and then some of our cousins, and then my uncle, Barry, and we would play Risk any time that we got together as extended family. And yeah, there was just this time where we were doing it all the time. And um, I was fairly young. I don't remember exactly how old, probably eight, nine, 10, 11, somewhere around there. Um, and so all and the- you understood the concepts of Risk um, I didn't un- eight and understand nine? all the, like, the, the rules. Like I would roll and then people would tell me what happened. To my armies because I was young enough that I didn't quite understand the rules of like the rolling and the army part of it. Okay. Um, but I just love the geography of it all. And um, my older, all, I was the youngest in our little group that was playing. And so the older cousins knew the rules. And of course, my Uncle Barry really knew the rules. And so, so yeah, we would play all the time and, and they would help, help me understand it. But uh, we just got really good at risk and really good at understanding it to the point where we went camping one time for our family reunion and we didn't have risk with us. We didn't bring it. No one thought to bring it. But when we all got together, it was like habit, you know, it was a Pavlovian reaction that like, hey, we're all together. We should be playing risk, but we can't play risk because we didn't bring it. What we did was we took some papers and we created the map of risk by memory and <laughs> um, all kind of helping each other. We all remembered. My geography is so rusty now, but back then it was pretty good. And, and like I said, we'd memorize the board enough that we could just create it um all the right boundaries and the names for you know because the names for countries were slightly different from real life if i remember right because the gamer was older i don't remember all it's been a long time since i played risk but and then we used um we used smarties for our armies because we had like a ton of smarties (laughs) so we just played risk on this uh cheap white paper and and smarties and it was fantastic it's one of my favorite uh camping memories even though it wasn't really a normal camping activity but (laughs) that's because you don't like normal camping activities i'm okay with camping we just (laughs) don't go as much as we should but speaking of woods and maps do you have any map stories of your adventures so i spent a summer at a boy scout ranch called philmont in new mexico up in the mountains and uh i was a, a ranger and so i took boy scout groups out for a few days, showed them the ropes, and then I'd hike back into base, have a day off, and then pick up the next crew. It was the best summer. But uh, as a ranger, we were supposed to show them, you know, like I'd show them orienteering with a map, and I'd <clears throat> yeah, map and compass and everything, and kind of give them the way to go. And they're Boy Scouts. They've all mostly had done this before. They've been training and stuff. But occasionally, um, I'd have to remind the the Boy Scout, like their troop leaders, I'd have to remind them that this is for the boys and the boys are supposed to be leading and taking care of everything. Just stand back. And so we'd let them lead and everything. But there were often times where they would take a wrong turn um, or like not check where they were supposed to go when we came to like a fork in the road. And so we'd just let them hike in the wrong direction for quite a while, you know, before we'd be like, hey, have you guys checked your maps recently? Are you sure we're going where we're supposed to? (laughs) 
kind of passively then, hinting yeah. to them that they're going the wrong way. <laughs> and then inevitably we'd have to like turn around and go back and take the other fork in the road. But So what you're saying is you were a ranger like Aragorn, but really you were more like Gandalf because that's totally something Gandalf <laughs> would do is just like let the hobbits and dwarves figure it all out on Decide their own. Decide where to go. Just, yeah. He would. He'd let them face the danger, and uh, he he won't interfere too much. <laughs> so you were Gandalf in this situation. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take being Gandalf. <laughs> but no, your uh, your risk story made me think because we're talking about the history of maps in literature, but it would be very interesting, in at least you know, in a, a nerdy sense. <laughs> I would find it very interesting to study the, the history of maps in games because, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it stems from a lot of these literary maps, particularly the Lord of the Rings map. Yeah. Um, but the idea that like Risk was one of the first board games that would have a big map. Right. I mean, you've got Dungeons and Dragons that have maps. Mm, um, not really. Well, they often will have like... Like in the booklet. Yeah, maybe. in like yeah. the booklet yeah, yeah. and things. Um, but then you think about it's really expanded in recent years. Like mm-hmm. if you've got like Ticket to Ride and Carcassonne. And uh, I just played a new one over Christmas break, King Domino <laughs> with my family. That one was like building your own map. Um, so that one's really fun. Because like, yeah, Carcassonne and King Domino and uh, Settlers of Catan. Mm-hmm. A bunch of these are all like map games. Yeah, it's, that's true. It's become a big thing recently i, I hadn't thought about it till just you were talking mm. about risk and it reminded me but yes we're talking about literary maps fictional maps the maps that don't truly exist we both love maps it's one of our at least one of my favorite things uh, just in books and in fantasy and oh, yes. one of my favorite things is just to open up a book and like, see oh, a map there's a, a new map, map and you just <laughs> kind of just study it for a bit and like ooh, what's that place oh that looks interesting over there well and when is this going to come up in the story and you kind of you know if it's there on the map it's going to play a part somewhere but not always i mean we'll talk about lord of the rings like there are so many places Mm -hmm. on there that maybe are briefly mentioned but even if you're just looking at lord of the rings and just the map of lord of the rings just that little small little pocket of middle earth there are so many places that aren't even covered in in the books um yeah, in the Lord of the Rings book specifically, but I don't know. But then there are others that you you go pretty much everywhere that you see on the map. So I love maps so much. It's one of my favorite things. I mean, we have a map on our wall, Middle Earth, just hanging there, yep. hanging out. That's my dream is to have just a bunch of fictional maps on, like a, a, just a wall of maps. But they're all fake. Yeah, all, all <laughs> fictional all fictional maps. I just think that sounds so Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. We'll mm-hmm. just start drawing them, Casey. We'll start putting them up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I had a professor at uh, in college and she was a like she had done her she was an English professor because that's both of our undergrad was English and she her what do you call it her graduate her doctorate oh yeah it was her doctorate no she didn't I think she just had a master's Mm. maybe it was a doctorate no it was a doctorate so yeah her PhD thesis was on maps in literature which sounded like the coolest thing to me yeah that sounds like the most amazing yeah. study field of study I, like, I want to read it mm-hmm. <laughs> at Purdue do you have an all-important question for us today I do have a very all-important question Casey what was the first book that fully immersed you into its setting so this is more of a personal all-important question yeah like you're a kid and you're reading along and you're like mm-hmm. wow look yeah at this. and just book not book. movies necessarily yes and, and not even necessarily like i mean it didn't even have to have a map but just like you feel so included in this mm-hmm. in this area this how you'd call it, you know like the the description's so good yeah well i can't 
think about settings and I can't think about maps without thinking of the Phantom Tollbooth in terms of books. I mean, movies were always like, I don't know if I'd say my first love. I, I guess I love them jointly, books and movies, but movies are almost easier to get immersed in at a young age. Um, cause we had this, this discussion at dinner the other night. Our, our six-year-old son asked us whether we were whether we liked books or movies more. Yeah. He's a books person, he and, says. And I said books. Mm-hmm. And you and our daughter said movies. Movies. So, so. we're split in the family. Yep. But that's a hard one because I do love books. And, well, yes. And um, we love movies. Yeah. What was I saying? Oh, just that like as a kid, visually, movies are just very arresting. At least they were to me. Like Star Wars, I was instantly part of that world. But if I'm just thinking about books, um, it, it would have to be the Phantom Tollbooth, which does have a map. I remember when I was very young, before I could read even simple things, like before I could read anything, but I was aware of what like a book was. I remember my older brother reading the Phantom Tollbooth and just seeing the cover and very intrigued by this. Like, who's this boy? And why is there this dog with a clock on its side? And it was just like one of those things that I remember distinctly, even though I was young, like I was probably four years old. It's one of my earliest memories. I remember thinking, when I can read, that's what I'm going to read. <laughs> and uh, and so eventually I got to the point where I could read like the chapter books. and um, And I'm sure there were little books before that that sort of, drew me in but nothing as much as the phantom toll booth you know you first open it and there's that map and like we said before you're immediately curious and you're wondering about all these different places and that's one of those maps where pretty much everywhere on the map the story does visit um the map's not overly complicated because it's a kid's a kid's story Um, yeah he's definitely traveling a lot and hitting everywhere and if you haven't so if you haven't read phantom toll booth just a, a brief entry point it's this boy that um his his name's milo and he is very bored with life when he's at home he wishes he was at school when he's at school he wishes he was at home and one day he arrives home to his uh, like apartment which it's kind of uh funny like there's no parents in the story i don't know if they're just working or what but he gets there and um there's just a package waiting for him and it's this magical toll toll booth and when he drives his little toy electric car past it it transports him to a magical land which is what's represented on the map and then he visits all these places. But uh, but yeah, that was the first book that really brought me into its setting where I felt like I was I was there. And um, which is funny because it's a very strange story. Like it's one of those books that I believe they are adapting it to film. And they did a long time ago, like in the 50s or 60s. But it, it's so um, enmeshed in words and the English language that it's, it's hard to adapt. But uh, still, even with that, aspect of it it's it's reliance on words i just felt so i don't know swept away into that story but what about you okay so when i was in eighth grade um well i started my eighth grade year and i hated it and so my mom let me be homeschooled (laughs) which by that i mean i legitimately just like read all year long i don't think i did like any math or science my mother wasn't very uh strict um but i read all the time And uh, one of the series that I remember picking up and starting and just loving, and I have reread it the whole series multiple times since then, is Anne of Green Gables. And Anne lives in this little town of Avonlea, which is a made-up town, but it's set on Prince Edward uh, Island in uh, Canada, PEI. So I remember reading that book and wondering, like, is Prince Edward's Island? Like, is that a real place? And so I would, like, pulled out 
this atlas that I had. I still I still have it, that giant atlas. Oh, yeah. I got that the year I was homeschooled. That we can't get rid of for some reason. It's just always Sentimental around. value. Hey, the kids and I were using it I mean, I'm okay with day. it. I love maps, <laughs> but it's just very large. <laughs> it's a giant atlas. But I remember pulling it out and looking up Canada and finding Prince Edward Island um, and being like, oh, so that's a real place. Um because this was, I don't know, I didn't use the internet very much when I was 12. You know, it was still a newer thing. I didn't just, like, Google it. So I actually used the atlas to, like, look up Prince Edward Island. But then I realized that Avonlea is not a real place. Mm. Um, but anyways, just the way that Ellen Montgomery describes it is, like, the most beautiful place ever. And I just still really want to go and visit and potentially live there. You want to go live in Prince Edward's Island with me? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> it's just these sceneries of, you know, lush green and the apple orchards and the, the river that she floats down. And say, will rowboats be involved? Yes. <laughs> and uh, just the idea that, you know, as she's traveling around, I felt like I could really visualize when she goes off to college and everything. It just was very picturesque. Yeah. It's stuck in my mind. All right. Are you ready for this, Casey? For what? For the history of maps in literature. I am so excited. <laughs> I cannot contain my glee. Like I said, we've been wanting to do this for, for quite a while. Yeah. So. I've been researching a lot on maps in literature, specifically fictional maps, though not entirely. I mean, when you think about maps and the history of maps, some of the first uh, like quote-unquote fictional maps that would have been created were ones of our own world before it had been explored. So you think about the idea that like they didn't exactly know it was on beyond their borders or beyond wherever they have traveled, but so they can start you know drawing things up like there's cave drawing, cave draw, cave drawings. <laughs> I'll get there. Um, there's cave drawings and and other things of of places that we aren't sure if they existed. Maybe they did exist, but they don't anymore, or maybe they were just ideas that people had. Um, so it's really interesting to think about that. Was in your research was there one of the maps? Um, it was like in Ireland, and there's like an island off of it that was Brazil. Oh, off of Brazil. No, no, no. It, oh, no, no, no. That's right. The thought, island is called. Yeah. It's like Brazil, but it's spelled with an S, like Brazil or something. Uh huh. Well, that's how the Brazilians spell Brazil anyway. That's true. But are they related, or is it coincidence that I'm they're spelled? I'm not sure. The same? But there were stories about the island of Brazil being off the coast or off the coast of Ireland. Mm -hmm. But there was myth around it, like it only appeared every so often. Right, it was like a Brigadoon thing. Like I read it thinking, Oh, this sounds like Brigadoon. Yes. But then I like a mythical island type thing. But then I was trying to research like was Brigadoon an old myth as well? Or was it Mm. just like did they take the myth of Brazil and combine it with this play? And I think Brigadoon is just for the play. I don't think that was an actual Legend, legend in Irish folklore, but I could be Scottish wrong. Scottish man. Scottish, not Irish. Scottish. Okay, that's right. That makes Brigadoon. sense. I love Brigadoon. I should know that, but I sometimes mix up Irish and Scottish. So you're gonna offend some people, sir. I'm not gonna offend. <laughs> I'm being honest that I sometimes mix it up, and I apologize. As long I, as you apologize. My my uncle lives in Ireland, but he's mm-hmm. not you know irish so i don't know if he would be offended but you offended me i'm scottish true my mother's maiden name was douglas the douglas clan yeah would you consider yourself scottish or in part of scottish descent (laughs) um i have a very mixed heritage so Mm. scottish in small part so was the island of brazil off of scotland or off ireland Ireland. see let's see that's why i'm getting mixed up then Mm, yeah so brigadoon Brigadoon is is scottish so that's why i'm okay 
Yes. That makes more sense why I'm so confused, which is common for me to be confused. But <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was a bit of interesting history that they had a map of that, of, of this mythical island off the coast. Of Pretty island, cool. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, so if we go all the way back to the year of 1320, Casey, when Dante's Divine Comedy was published, it did not have a map, but I forget the name, some wealthy guy who liked the book. Uh, commissioned Sandro Botticelli, um, an Italian artist, to create a map for the Divine Comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you see it now, a lot of times that they will include this this map of Botticelli's, like the um, with like the levels of Seven hell levels or whatever. Yeah, yeah. which Isn't I was that into- nine levels of hell. Oh, we had this debate when we first started dating. So don't ask me. <laughs> Neither of us remember. But I was thinking about this in the in the context of Paradise Lost as well, because I was curious if Paradise Lost had ever had maps drawn for it in the same way that Dante's had, because both are about about hell and. And Paradise Lost is about, they call it Pandemonium. But I wondered if there were any maps of Pandemonium. And Did you find any? There, there's some, but the, the issue is that Pandemonium is very simply described. And so the maps aren't really necessary. Uh, um, it's not like seeing the It's not very exciting. Whereas, yeah, in, da- in, Dante, seven. You, in Dante, you need the seven to nine levels <laughs> um, mapped out so that you can sort of see them uh, visually. So after that, we can make it to uh, 1516 with Thomas More's Utopia. So this is the first book, and I mean, his is more of a satire, but it's still a fantastical world, this utopia. Um, And in his book, there was a map printed along with it. So that would be the first known fantasy map, or, you know, map included in a a fantasy work. Then we come to the big one, 1883, Treasure Island. Mm. Have you ever read Treasure Island? I've not read Treasure Island. I haven't read Treasure Island, and I was thinking, why don't we own a copy of Treasure Island? I've seen Muppet Treasure Island. That's the closest I've got. This is where all of my knowledge of Treasure Island comes from, is Muppet Treasure Island (laughs) as well. So We're very cultured. (laughs) But it was really interesting to read more about... Um, Treasure Island, and, and Robert Louis Stevenson was the author, but his stepson, Lloyd Osborne, was actually, um, like, they were on a, they were in a Scottish Highland cottage. Now Are you we're, sure now it we're wasn't back, Irish? Now we're <laughs> back to Scotland. <laughs> but they were, you know, like, on a vacation, and his stepson was, like, bored. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is his memory here. I was, gonna, I was going to share his memory. So Lloyd Osborne, he says... Busy with a box of paints, I happened to be tinting a map of an island I had drawn. Stevenson came in as I was finishing it, and with his affectionate interest in everything I was doing, leaned over my shoulder and was soon elaborating the map and naming it. I shall never forget the thrill of Skeleton Island, Spyglass Hill, nor the heart-stirring climax of the Three Red Crosses, and the greater climax still when he wrote down the words Treasure Island at the top right-hand corner. And he seemed to know so much about it, too. The pirates, the buried treasure, the man who had been marooned on the island. Oh, for a story about it, I exclaimed in in a heaven of enchantment. So his stepson, you know, Stevenson's stepson who kind of was drawing this map and so it's kind of the inspiration for stevenson's treasure so, yeah island. so this was before treasure island was a story right, right? it he, started with a map it started with a map which i love that idea yeah like it started with a map and not just that but because stevenson's map goes on to be like the quintessential idea of having a treasure map in fact a lot of the ideas that we get from treasure island like 
peg leg pirates or pirates with a one eye, you know, with an eye patch or an X marks the spot. X marks the, the spot. Yeah. Exactly. Just all these ideas that we have of pirates come from Robert from Louis Stevenson. Stevenson. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, that original map, Stevenson sent it to his publisher to be included with the book, mm-hmm. um, but it was lost in the post. Oh, no. Somewhere between Scotland and and London, yeah. And uh, so he had to Stevenson had to redraw the map, but he was never quite as happy with it as the original. That's a bummer. I uh, know that original map is lost somewhere. That's why we make copies. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the the idea mm-hmm. that this one map sort of changed the way we view things. Like like you said, this the stereotype or the the iconic imagery of, of piracy is all down to basically beginning with that one map. I love that. Yeah. Also with this map, Stevenson took the time to make it very real. A lot of maps beforehand, I mean, you think of Botticelli's version of Dante's Inferno, like there's just, it's a drawing and, you know, there's levels to it and things, but it's not like, like Stevenson's map has, um, like he's got a compass rose and he's even labeled depths, like sea depths. There's like numbers on there. That's awesome. And so he tried to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah. Um, so it really would be like, hey, here's a map you could follow to Treasure Island, which is fantastic. On a side note, I found it really interesting while I was researching about Stevenson that uh, he took his family. So they lived in California for a while, which I didn't know because he's a he's an English author. <clears throat> but from California, he chartered a boat for his family to like voyage through the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. So they like hung out in Hawaii for a while and he became good friends with the king of Hawaii. <laughs> and then they even made it all the way to like Samoa and they were living there for the last few uh, last while of Stevenson's life, which is where Stevenson actually died was in Samoa. So Stevenson really did live out his own, you know, seafaring adventure, which I thought was cool. So next, moving ahead to 1926. Um, this map, unlike Stevenson's, not quite as realistic, um, but Winnie the Pooh, uh, the Hundred Acre Wood map. And what I like about this map is that it was, if you'll notice, like written at the bottom, it says, you know, drawn by me, like it's Christopher Robin's own map. Right, so like it's supposed to be the character yeah. <laughs> in the story, their own map. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's drawn by me with some help from um, Mr. Uh, Shepard, Shepherd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fun because then you have a you know a fictional map included in the book by a fictional character, which is very cute, and just the little drawings of everybody's houses and things. Such a sweet. I'm a big Winnie the Pooh fan, so I love that. So speaking of of Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Uh, a. Milne, the author, my my sister Lindsay shared this fact with me, and I had no idea, but it's really cool. So. And it's related because it's literary. So apparently um, H.G. Wells was A.A. Milne's teacher when he was young. So H.G. Wells, the science fiction author. But then he was also on a cricket team with J.M. Barry, the creator of Peter (laughs) Pan, and Arthur Conan Doyle. Like they were all on this cricket team together. And then I'd learn to play cricket if I could hang out with them. Right. And then um, (laughs) Tolkien. I'm sure women weren't allowed. uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, author of Lord of the Rings, fought in some battles with A.A. Milne as well. So there's this awesome like connection this camaraderie between all these all these british authors um did uh did peter pan ever have a map you know i looked that up because i was curious there have been maps made since of um neverland but there wasn't one included in like the original play and i mean i guess that's true if it was a play first and then a novel so yeah but there weren't any original maps included in the book 
Um, another fun tidbit about A.A. Milne and Mr. Shepard, who did the illustrations and the maps, um, because the map and the illustrations helped the books sell so well, um, A.A. Milne made sure that Shepard got part of the, um, not the commission, what's it called? The, uh, the royalties. Yeah, part of the royalties mm, of the awesome. books. Which none of the other artists that you've talked about, I think, probably didn't. No, I mean, Botticelli, he was um, commissioned, so he would have gotten paid for his map. Up front or whatever? Yeah. Oh, okay. But, you know, that's several hundred years in between. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever drew those. And the other maps were mostly, like, were drawn by the authors themselves. Mm-hmm. So they weren't technically paid for the maps so much as the story. Yeah. Just as an aside, I just had this thought. But in Peter Pan, the Disney cartoon, when they're flying to Neverland, it has, like, a map-like quality to it, though. Yes. Like, you can see the compass rose and, like, mm-hmm. the grid in the ocean, I think, even. Can you see the yeah, grid? Yeah, like, the longitude and latitude. The... I yeah. think so. Um, yes, it's like they fly to the map. Yeah. They travel by map. Anyways, the Muppets do. Yeah, that mm. memory memory of that shot came to me, but I love that. Yep. Um, so technically the le- next map I could find um, was Lord of the Rings, but I did want to mention before we get to Lord of the Rings, because I know we have lots we want to talk about there, Yeah. Um, was that, so Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, the first of the Chronicles of Narnia that was published, they were published in 1950, so that was like six years before Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. came around, um, or was published anyways. Um but so they didn't originally have a map in the books. Uh, C.S. Lewis had kind of, you know, drawn his own sketches, um, but they weren't included in the books. And then <clears throat> the original illustrator of the books, Pauline Baines, um, who actually did illustrations for Tolkien. Oh, wow. And did some of his, like, map sketches and things, mm-hmm. which is actually how C.S. Lewis heard about her is because... Because they were buddies. <laughs> yeah, she was buddies with Tolkien. And uh, so, anyway, she had done the original illustrations for C.S. Lewis's books, mm-hmm. um, all the Chronicles of Narnia books. And then in 1972, she then, like, went back and did a map of all of Chronicles of Narnia, or all of Narnia, because there's, like, outlying yeah. other uh, countries and, and islands and things that come apart, come around later. So. Had Lewis passed away by then? Was that No, he was post-mortem? still alive. Okay. So, yeah. It wasn't possible. And so in some of the past 1972, you can find illustrations. Like our copy has has a map. Um, what's cool about her map is that it's like almost like color coordinated. Mm-hmm. And so different areas of the map, like in the corner, there's, you guys should look up a, a picture of it, but like in the corner, there'll be one that says like Voyage of the Dawn Treader, like mm-hmm. a little circle and there's some colors around it. Mm-hmm. And so that area of the map will be in that color. Oh, cool. So it's very like a very colorful map. Oh, I think I have map. seen that. Now that you mention that, yeah, the one in that our familiar. book is printed just on the opening page, and it's right. all just in blue. So like matches oh, yeah. the cover. Yeah. Um, but the original colored one is very pretty. That's awesome. So I'll start us off on the one map to, to rule, rule them, them all. all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to. Um. So Lord of the Rings as like the king of fantasy maps. It's kind of like the inspiration of all fantasy maps to follow. Um, part of that is interesting because like uh, Stevenson's map, it brings into play like a lot of real life, you know, like it, uh, he colors in the mountains and the forests and he, and he, and he uh, has like the compass rose and everything. Like they make it feel like a real world that you could step into, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then there's, so while it looks very real map-like, it also was done kind of on yellowing parchment type of a look. 
and they use calligraphy for like the names of the towns, which makes it feel more like it would have been made by somebody in that world. You know, somebody's like carrying around this scroll of a map. Somebody has handwritten on all the names of the places. Um, so it's very interesting to think that like combining of the two, like you make it a very realistic map, but also something that would have come specifically from that Middle Earth world, which I love. So of course, The Hobbit came out before Lord of the Rings, and there is a map in The Hobbit which is even used in the story, like the um, only certain of the runes can be read at a certain on a certain night they show up, and so they can find out how to get into the the door on the side of the lonely mountain. Um, so there is that map, um, but that map is very simple compared to the much bigger map in Lord of the Rings. So much like Stevenson, I I was surprised to learn about Stevenson starting with a map. Um, Middle Earth also essentially started with a map. Tolkien said, I wisely started with a map and let the story follow. And Tolkien is notorious for being much more invested in the history and the geography and the big epic scale of it all, more so than like the characters. Not to say that he doesn't care about his characters, but um, the the setting is very important in Lord of the Rings and very it was very important to Tolkien. But yeah, he, he also started with the map and let the story follow. I love learning about the map of Middle Earth because the the image we think of when we think of Middle Earth is just a very small part of Middle Earth. There's much more to the south and much more to the east uh, than the map that we have in in Lord of the Rings. And that that map I didn't realize that. And that map's just from the Third Age. So if you look at the map from the First Age, it's vastly different. And so that's really cool to see. Or it's really cool to think about Lord of the Rings just looking at the map because depending on what map you're looking at, you can tell what age you're in. For example, there's a big swath of land and it was eventually, a lot of it was covered up by water. And then, well, let me go back. So in the early ancient times of of Middle Earth, it's actually flat. The earth is flat. It's not round. And later in, I, I think it's Second Age maybe the first stage. At some point, the earth is made round like our earth. And the whole thing with Lord of the Rings is that it's supposed to be sort of an alternate prehistory, an alternate history of earth, um, an an alternate retelling of of our own past. And so by the time of, you know, beyond the Lord of the Rings that we know, the earth and the geography starts to look like our own earth. And so that's why the map of Middle Earth looks a little bit like England, um, but not quite exactly the same and obviously like the science of tectonic shifting was different back when when Tolkien was writing it and also he's bringing in like godly beings changing the shifting earth and so the actual time frame of how the the geography changes over time is really fast compared to you know the millions of years that we know but yeah so there's this big swath of land that's all of the world of Arda and eventually the middle of it gets covered up with water and there's also an island of Numenor at during the second age that also gets covered with water it's sort of a um, an allegory or representation of the Atlantis myth and so depending on what map you're looking at or Middle Earth you can tell what age you're in. Um, are these other maps in the Silmarillion? Yeah most of them are in the Silmarillion um, as far as I know and so what, what's cool with the Amazon series that we talked about a few episodes ago that Amazon's making Lord of the Rings and they sort of teased a Middle Earth map um, a couple months ago. And so people were trying to look at the map and figure out, well, what age is this series going to be set in? Because right. you um, could do a lot of surrounding stories. Yeah. And so people were saying, well, Beleriand is, is not there. And so we know that 
it's not the first age because it's been covered with water. But then later, Amazon released another Im- image where clearly the island of Numenor was there. So now we know that it's going to be set l- long before the Lord of the Rings movies because the island of Numenor is still there. So Interesting. Yeah, all very cool. And um, I don't know if I've explained it super well, but uh, the, the problem is I'm not an expert on this. I know Lord of the Rings pretty well, but anything before that I don't know a ton about so some of the basics geographically are interesting what's also funny about the the map of of middle earth is i was reading there was a geologist complaining about the map of middle earth because the mountains the way they're like if you look at mordor it's this and i've always thought this too looking at the map like mordor looks really weird like there's this weird box of mountains and it looks weird because that's not natural mountains would never mountains don't do corners (laughs) Um, (laughs) mountains don't grow so to speak like that because of the tectonic plates and you could make the argument that well it's it's fantasy and there's um you know magical beings at work and and such but uh also the the volcano mount doom i don't believe would just be in the middle there it'd be like part of the range more likely Mm, um that would make sense but uh very fun and i mean the geologist wasn't really like you know lambasting it just uh slightly complaining about the <laughs> geology and geography of middle earth not being right scientifically very accurate. impractical and we have to give tolkien some credit he was you know writing this in the 50s and beyond so this was he was also busy creating time. languages and elvish songs right. and yeah. you know he was the interested history of you know right he was, interested a little in, preoccupied. he was interested in the map as far as it would tell the history and the story and the languages, like you said, more so than any geological um, expertise. Oh, just briefly, also something that's interesting too with Lord of the Rings is that in The Hobbit, the, the company is moving from west to east. They're moving horizontal. In Lord of the Rings, they're moving much more north to south. And so between the two books, you kind of get a, a more full covering of that area. And obviously, like I said, it's not all of, all of Middle Earth. Also, I didn't know this until recently. The Undying Lands aren't on Earth anymore. Like they're in a, it's almost like another dimension, which they used to be just across the ocean in the earlier oh, ages. Oh, so that's why I sail to them. Yeah, in the I earlier ages. Just... Yeah, and so it's like that land bridge that, kind of like a land bridge that got covered with water. You could have um, theoretically just walked to the undying lands if you wanted to i mean it would take a long time but but that got covered with water and then for a time the undying lands were still there across the water and you'd have to sail to them but they've over time they gradually moved like farther and farther away at one point they were outside the atmosphere and then they're kind of like in another dimension now which which makes sense if we're talking about this as an alternate history of our own earth um because if you sailed there you just find you know canada but (laughs) <laughs> uh, or maybe even Greenland or something before that, but they basically are sailing to heaven. That makes me really interested. Does that mean that like their boat just disappears at some point to go to the Undying Lands? How do they get there now? Because they sail away. They have to take what's called the. I think it's called the Straight Road. It's basically like the, only the elves know how to Stairway get there. To heaven. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the all the elves eventually take that. Um, that path to the Undying Lands, and that's why there's no elves on Earth today. Um, that's also why the hobbits are very English and almost anachronistic, because they're much closer to our our present than, or at least the present of Tolkien of Tolkien's time than the elves were. Well, what other maps did you want to talk about, Casey? I think we can't not talk about Harry Potter and the Marauders map. Naturally, we're big fans. Yeah, I remember first reading about the Marauders map and thinking that was so amazing and um, magical yeah and obviously there's some callbacks to more like the hobbit map in that there's some magic to it 
and like we said in the hobbit the the runes show up at a certain night and the marauders map is very much magic showing where everyone's moving and it's just so cool i just it's just a cool idea and it was a great invention on rolling's part it's fun to think about it as a map that was invented by the characters almost Mm. you know like christopher robin's map like it's drawn by christopher robin because it's his land and here we have the you know the four marauders, um, James, Sirius, Lupin, and what's Peter his name? Pettigrew. Peter Pettigrew. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so we have they came about with this idea to you know create this magical map and to enable them to you know travel around the castle whenever they wanted to and not get into trouble, which is a pretty impressive piece of magic. It makes me wonder who had the most work to do in that. My guess would be Remus, but James and Sirius weren't, you know, they weren't not smart. They just were also troublemakers. It's kind of an invasion of your privacy. This Absolutely. This map knows where you're at at all times. <laughs> like, that's kind of creepy when you think about it. I feel like you'd have to have some way, I don't know, of either like tapping into Hogwarts natural magic to make this thing work or have a bit of each person, you know, like Yeah, it's super impressive. Yeah, like you'd I mean to be you think about like the polyjuice potion, you have to have a piece of their hair to make this work, you know. Yeah. Like I feel like you'd need like a bit of everybody's essence in some way in the map to make it work or But that doesn't make sense because they yeah. don't have that by the time Harry gets it, you know. It I be, know. So of, it's yeah got to be connected to some of Hogwarts' mystical powers. And mostly today we've been talking about, well, pretty much exclusively about books. Um, Just briefly, the Harry Potter movies, too. We should bring that up because the Marauder's Map is a very important and really cool prop, the way they just, um, it's got layers to it. And I'm just going to read a little bit about the prop makers. So graphic designers Miraforamina, which that's a Harry Potter name, Miraforamina. Like, that has to be someone actually in the Harry Potter world. (laughs) I'm convinced. So graphic designers Miraforamina and Eduardo Lima wanted a folded map rather than a rolled treasure map with burned edges. And they say, so you would have the sense that every time you unfolded it, you were going up or down to another layer of the school, says Mina. Instead of draftsman's lines, the shapes of areas and objects depicted on the map are defined with written words, which I always thought was a cool effect that all the walls and the structure is like it looks like magical script of some kind yes Mm -hmm. yeah that's outlining everything so what i just read was from um this big giant harry potter page to screen the complete filmmaking journey which is a fantastic book by the way okay so according to pottermore on the marauders map here's the magic that makes this possible um it says that it's you know advanced and impressive it includes the i'm not how, how would you say that casey homunculus charm homunculus charm enabling the possessor of the map to track the movements of every person in the castle, and it was also enchanted to forever repel, as insultingly as possible, the curiosity of their nemesis, Severus Snape. But it doesn't say anything about the homunculus charm and what's involved with that. Yeah, how that actually works and how it's they make it sound tied simple, to but it Hogwarts. I know. <laughs> it would have to be something very impressive. Leave it to troublemakers to use the most advanced advanced type of magic. Like Fred and George are amazing wizards, but uh, they use their magic for lightening other people's day Although or making it worse Their magic on who you is are, also very impressive. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, like like the the troublemakers seem to have the most advanced magic. They have very Harry clever Potter. minds. Yeah. I mean, the original four marauders also became Animagus. At right. a very young age, so they uh, I guess not three became Animagus. One was a werewolf. Any other maps you wanted to bring up? You know, I did find it interesting when I was thinking about uh, Tolkien's map and how it kind of 
became this, it became the fantasy map that inspired all the other fantasy maps. Um, in fact, when I was doing research, I read about, you know, George R. R. Martin mentioned it being a big influence um, for Game of Thrones. And uh, there were several others who, you know, mentioned it. And there were lots of other authors who mentioned that they, they also start with like a map when they're writing their stories. Yeah. Um, kind of map things out. And then the plot of the story will come to them as they map. And I feel like you can't read a modern fantasy book without there being a map inside the cover. Yeah. Like I was thinking back in the last six months, I have read three fantasy series and every one of them had a map in it. So I read the Throne of Glass series and Rebel of the Sands and what was the third? Um, Ever the Hunted, Ever the Brave, something and Once a King. No, something like that. But anyways, um, those were, oh, Clash of Clash of Kingdoms. That's the name of that series. Anyways, all three of those are set in a fantasy world. And so they naturally have a fantasy map. I feel like at the beginning of the story, you do you do you study the map when you first open a book and look at a fantasy I book? I don't know if study is the right word, but I, I look a, a lot at it. But then I feel like you need both. You need the map and the story. Like they're a perfect marriage in a way. See, I always feel like when I start reading the book and there's a map, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited there's a map. But I also won't look at it very closely like it makes me i feel like it gives things away oh that yeah that makes sense like if there's certain places then i know that they're gonna come up or mm. whatever it is whereas if you just hear a town's name in passing you, you might yeah. just ex- excuse it as just a detail in the story but if you hear it in passing in the story but you also had seen it on the map very prominently placed and you're like oh that's gonna come and play a role later like i feel like it gives it's clues. like a teaser trailer that gives yeah, away too much it gives away clues to the book so i don't ever read look at the map Mm -hmm. until I'm uh, I like to go back and look at the map a lot after I finish the series and then study and see where everything took place I do feel like there's a disadvantage though because sometimes then I I picture them traveling north but that city was actually in the south or whatever it is Lord of the Rings I always imagine them traveling the fellowship going from south to north I picture Mm -hmm. Mordor up in the north oh really but it's not it's in the south yeah when it's not like exactly I I said before like they're going from north to south and it's not exact it's a little more diagonal but but I, I think I thought I always thought that because uh, Aragorn is from uh, the north. He's yeah. a ranger from the north. Mm-hmm. And I figured he was closer to the White City, to Mordor, oh, to yeah. everything. Yeah. But he's but, farther, much farther away. Yeah, yeah, he's much farther away. But anyways, so that's that's my own map caveat. I like to look at it a lot yeah. after, but I don't usually study it beforehand. I could see that, especially with something like Phantom Tollbooth, where there's roads. Because a lot of fantasy maps, if it's like sword and sorcery high fantasy, they don't have actual roads. And so right, you might not, not be able to tell where, they where they're go. going. Whereas in Phantom Tollbooth, you could kind of guess Milo's route just by looking at where the roads go. Not exactly, but but I could see that. Yeah, that's another fun thing about fantasy maps with books is sometimes they're very real and it looks just like a map. And other times uh, it looks like a map, but they'll not just have locations, but they'll have events written on the map. Oh, yeah. Like if it's Aslan's table or whatever, like you'll know where that happens. It has events as part of what happens there, which I... Uh, and in those cases especially, it gives a lot away. Yeah. When I was younger, I read The Phantom Tollbooth like as many years as I could get away with it for book reports in elementary school. Um, it's not that I didn't like to read other books. I just loved that book so much. And so I read it at least once a year. And often teachers would have like a list of different things you could do for the book report. And one of them was create a map. And obviously I think it was for the books that didn't have maps already. <laughs> but I was like, ooh, I'm going to do that. So I just you basically copied, the, copied map? the map and used <laughs> that. Um, I don't know if my teacher realized that there already was a map for that book. <laughs> but you got away with it, huh? I, she didn't I mean, yeah, say anything? No one said anything. 
something. At the time, I didn't really think I was like getting out of work. I just oh, got it. Like, yeah, I wasn't intending to do that. I was just like excited. I was like, cool, I can just draw this map because I love this map. I didn't think anything right. of it. I wasn't trying to get out of. I wasn't trying to be lazy. But your teacher was probably really impressed. Like, wow, what a thorough map Casey yeah. made. <laughs> It's got a compass rose. It's got a grid to it. It's, it's exactly yeah, like the books. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we end, just broadly, why do you think people, audiences, us, why do why do we love maps so much? Like fictional maps. We've talked a little bit a little bit about it, I think. But I think the big thing for me is that it makes me buy into the world. This place is real because there's a map made of it. Obviously, you don't take the time to map out somewhere that doesn't exist. What would be the point, you know? <laughs> so it helps me buy into the believability of the story to really immerse myself in it. And it's just fun to go back and explore the details and and see the places that your characters have been and and to really enjoy this uh, the story more. Yeah, I agree. I think that's basically my answer. It's like a it's it's like an artifact from the fictional world. It it does make it feel real. It's it's like if the book came with a sword of the main character or the wizard's hat or but obviously books can't always do that. And so the the easiest, I guess, way to do it is to have a map of the story and I just I love maps. <laughs> I love that idea that it the map is like giving you a piece of the story. Yeah. In a real sense. Like yeah, it's tangible. It's an artifact. Mm-hmm. An artifact from that world. Yeah. Well, These are the maps that the characters carried around with them in their pocket, obviously. Yeah. Well, you want to close us out? Thanks for listening to our episode about maps here. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have anything you want to tell us about maps, maybe we forgot one of your most favorite maps or or maybe one of our facts was completely inaccurate. It's possible. Uh, you can find us on uh Instagram or Twitter at at elsewhere underscore pod. I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Casey runs the accounts. He's our our media man. Mm -hmm. And and just uh, tell your friends about us if you if you love us and rate and review us wherever you're listening to us. We appreciate any feedback, honestly. And uh, we I've said it before, but we love our listeners. And uh, And thanks for listening. Please keep listening, and we hope you enjoy us. And happy beeps. Happy beeps.